Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing it is to come and to listen to your word this morning. We pray that you would bring good fruit in our time here together. We pray that you'd lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to preach, and I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully that your son Jesus would be exalted. Lord, we ask that you would use this time to grow us and strengthen us as disciples to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Americans, we love our freedom. It's a good thing. God's blessed us with freedom. I love the freedom that we enjoy in this land. Americans, we we love this freedom. And North Carolinians, we really love this freedom. Uh, Not only were we the first in flight, sorry, Ohio, but we also, according to our license tax, and I can verify this, I studied this in my senior year of high school, the first in freedom. Yeah, so sorry, Philadelphians, if you think that the Declaration of Independence was first, 20 months before you, just down the road, we had signers of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. If you want to see the statue, it's on 4th Street at the old courthouse. We were the first in freedom here in Charlotte. We love freedom. It's a good thing. But I wonder if our cultural understanding and value for freedom can cause us as Christians to misunderstand what Christian freedom truly is. Christian, do you understand what true freedom looks like? Do you know what it looks like, Christian, to exercise freedom? That's what the Apostle Paul addresses in Galatians Chapter 5, that's where we're going to focus our attention this morning on verses 13 through 26. Go ahead and turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Galatians 5, verses 13 through 26. The best way to stay engaged in our sermon is to open up a copy of the Bible. If you need a Bible this morning, take the Bible right in front of you in the pew rack. Turn to page 975, 975. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26 this morning. Let me read through all of our passage as we begin. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. As we look at this passage this morning, there's a main idea that I want you to get out of this sermon. Here's the main idea if you're taking notes. Christians exercise freedom by loving others, fighting sin, and walking by the Spirit. Christians exercise freedom by loving, one another, by loving others, fighting sin, and walking by the Spirit. A little bit of context if you're jumping in this morning. Chapter 5, verse 1 was a transition in the letter of Galatians, a turning point. In chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul exhorted the Galatians, for freedom Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He was warning the Galatians of this temptation to turn away from Christ, to turn away from the freedom that Christ alone gives to his people. And they were being tempted to add to the gospel, to add the, the law of Moses to the gospel, that they would trust in Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus their own good works. And, and their freedom in Christ was in danger. They needed to stand firm in the freedom that Christ had already given them by His grace alone, through faith in Him alone. But threats to our freedom in Christ, they come from different directions. And this morning, the Apostle Paul addresses a threat to their freedom coming from another direction. You see, they needed to understand what Christian freedom truly is. How do you live in the freedom that is yours in Christ? Christian, what does it look like to use your freedom properly? That's what this passage addresses, and we're going to consider this morning three ways to use your freedom. We're going to break down that main idea into three ways to use your freedom. First, the first way to use your freedom in Christ, verses 13 through 15, use your freedom to love others. Use your freedom to love others. Now, if the Galatians were going to follow Paul's exhortation and stand in the freedom that was theirs in Christ, then they needed to be clear on what Christian freedom truly is. And you need to be clear on that as well. True freedom does not mean doing whatever you want. Again, I wonder if our understanding culturally and nationally of freedom has this wrong idea that freedom primarily is being free of restraint, free of anyone holding us back from exercising what it is that we want to do. Now, Paul has spent most of his time addressing legalism. So the Galatians needed to be on guard against legalism. Uh, that's just simply put, for them, trying to put themselves under the law of Moses to gain their acceptance before God by their own law-keeping. If you're trying to justify yourself, that's turning away from Christ. And at the same time, there's another ditch. So there's legalism, but there's another ditch on the opposite side of the road that they needed to steer clear from. And the Apostle Paul seems to anticipate this as he addresses them here in this section. Steer clear from legalism, but also steer clear from the opposite ditch of licentiousness or, or license. License is also a wrong view of freedom. License sees freedom as coming without restraint, coming without responsibility. License sees freedom as, as being free to do whatever it is you want to do or feel like doing. License is really not that concerned with moral obligations or expectations. License wrongly views freedom as coming without responsibility. And Paul warns the Galatians of this in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The word flesh here refers to sinful flesh. So, so Christians, we've already been saved and redeemed by Christ, yet until glory, we live life in the flesh. And the Apostle Paul addressed this in his own testimony back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, the, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now here in chapter 5, Paul refers to more than just like the flesh being the human body. Think about the, the flesh as sinful inclinations that still remain in us due to our fallen condition. Sinful inclinations that still remain in us due to our fallen condition. That means temptation certainly comes from outside of us, from the world, from the devil, but temptation also comes from within us. Sinful flesh. That's why you were tempted today. This morning. That's why you were tempted to sin against God, tempted to dishonor Him, to break His commandments. The flesh, it manifests itself in our lives through sinful desires, through craving what God has forbidden in His Word, 
The flesh has a propensity to sin against God. Now, true freedom does not indulge these desires of the flesh, but rather fights against the flesh, fights against the sinful desires of the flesh. Those who live in freedom in Christ will not see God's grace and will not see His forgiveness as a license to sin, as a license to be unconcerned about sin, to just shrug off sin as if it's not that big of a deal. The cross tells us sin was a pretty big deal because Jesus died to pay for our sins. So every single one of our sins, no matter how common it may seem, no matter how acceptable it may seem culturally, is a big deal. And God's grace would never lead us to just shrug off sin in our lives. In other words, you are not free, Christian, to do whatever you want any old time. I know the song says that. It's a wrong view of freedom. If you think that Christian liberty and freedom translates to not being concerned with how you live and not being concerned with holiness and obedience, to to not being engaged in spiritual disciplines like God's Word and prayer, well, then you fundamentally misunderstand Christian freedom. For those who've repented of their sin by God's grace, their sin against God, turned to put their faith in Jesus, you've been freed from sin, not freed to sin. Now, first we see in this passage a warning, starting at the end of verse 13, don't give opportunity to the flesh. So the right direction that Christian freedom will will lead you is towards loving others. Look at the end of verse 13. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christian freedom, it's the freedom from bondage of sin and the freedom to love your neighbor. Now, Paul quotes Leviticus 19, 18 here, which we plan to hear more of that tonight. John Matthews, Lord willing, will give us an Old Testament reflection tonight from Leviticus 19, 18, quoted right here in verse 14. It points out that the law is fulfilled in loving your neighbor as yourself. And isn't this the same thing Jesus taught? When a scribe asked Jesus which commandment was the most important, he answered back in Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the entire Old Testament law, some 630 commands that were summarized in 10 commandments given to Moses. Really, two commandments highlight and summarize fulfilling the whole law. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, you may wonder, why did Paul just mention loving neighbor here in Galatians 5, 14? I think he demonstrates that doing one requires the other. If you love God, that will be seen, there'll be evidence of that in loving your neighbor. And a love for neighbor is rooted in a love for God. I mean, consider part of the second table of the Ten Commandments. If you love your neighbor, you won't commit a murder or adultery. If you love your neighbor, you won't steal from them. If you love your neighbor, you won't bear false witness against them. You see, a love for neighbor shows that we love God vertically. Now, licentiousness, it's wrapped up not in loving your neighbor, but in loving yourself. And you may hear this and think, love your neighbor as yourself. What about loving yourself? I think that love turns us outward. We don't really need more instructions on how to love ourselves. I mean, think about it. We we love ourselves far too much. Who thinks about you the most, humanly speaking? Well, you do. You think about yourself the most, which shows us why most of our insecurities are lies. People really aren't thinking about us as much as we're thinking about ourselves. And maybe sometimes our insecurities are right and people are thinking about us. Maybe just for a moment because they'll go back to thinking about themselves. We think about ourselves enough. We wrestle with being self-focused, self-centered. And Christ frees you from that slavery. He frees you from that way of living. 
Live out the freedom that is yours in Christ by being freed from a life of selfishness to live a life of loving sacrifice to others. Now, this love, it's demonstrated in relationships. That's why it's saying love your neighbor. Think about who your, your neighbor is. I mean, your neighbor certainly refers to every relationship you have. So, so my wife is my neighbor in one sense. My kids are my neighbor. They're my closest neighbors in one sense. The arena of the home to demonstrate love to them. Your neighbor is your fellow church member. The church, the local church, is an arena to demonstrate the love of Christ. We love others through the same love of Christ that's been shown to us. And this love for neighbor, it's demonstrated in all sorts of relationships. Let's think about how Christian love transforms your marriage. Husbands and wives are motivated in love to be free from dwelling on what can my spouse do for me? Or dwelling on what has my spouse not done for me? And free to think, how can I best serve my husband? How can I best serve my wife? How can I put their needs and interests ahead of my own needs? Brothers and sisters, that's freedom. That's a freedom that comes from Jesus Christ. A freedom to get outside of ourselves. A freedom from self-love to love neighbor as ourselves. Love also characterizes relationships in the local church. This is a place where we strive to love and serve one another, not living like consumers who just come to consume and enjoy what others have to offer us, but rather seeking to be providers for others, to provide encouragement for others, to provide spiritual encouragement, to provide love and service and and grace to others. You see, true freedom is exercised by loving others as we've been loved by Jesus Christ and giving self-sacrificially. As we walk in freedom and this love of Christ, we become more sensitive to the ways that we sin against others. You see Paul's admonition to the Galatian Christians there in verse 15 of how they are to guard against unloving words and actions toward one another. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. He's giving a picture here basically saying don't act like animals. Animals bite each other, will devour one another. Your words and your actions have the opportunity to build up They also have the opportunity to hurt, to tear down. Don't act like animals. Now, what animal is commonly used as a metaphor for Christians, like an image of Christians? Sheep. So we're sheep. Well, don't be a sheep that bites. Don't be a sheep that bites other sheep. Now, something was going on there. We see another reference to these unloving actions and words down in verse 26. Paul exhorts them away from a selfish, prideful, provoking of others, envying others. From this passage, it seems like some jealous fighting was going on in those churches, and certainly jealousy tears down all sorts of relationships. Whatever it was that was going on amongst the Galatians, rather than lovingly build one another up, they were tempted to tear each other down. Guard against biting one another. What does that look like? Well, it's not physically biting other people. That's biting through words and actions. Let me give you three examples. Gossip, complaining, and a condemning spirit. Three examples of what just commonly happens in churches to bite others. Gossiping, complaining, and a condemning spirit. Gossiping is just spreading a report about someone that's not your report to spread. Often it's to to tear somebody down. It's a way to bite others. Sometimes they come masked in prayer requests. It's, it's not good to be sharing things about others to cast them in a bad light. And it often comes from a jealous heart. Condemning others with a judgmental attitude. Church members are inevitably going to have different convictions, different passions. And sometimes Christians can be pushy with one another on their personal convictions and their passions. And sometimes your convictions might get misplaced into being self-righteous. I love members of our church that are really passionate about evangelism 
And instead of thinking, well, I'm so glad I care about evangelism more than everyone else in this church, they try to lead others to care more about evangelism. Guard against a self-righteous attitude of, I wish everybody had the same convictions I do. I wish everyone cared about the poor as much as I do. I wish everyone was attuned to cultural and social issues, justice issues, as much as I am. I wish everyone thought the same way about educating their kids the way I did. We'd have a better church. It's just self-righteous. And it's, it's biting. And it's judging. And those types of things can devour churches. And then finally, complaints. Complaints are often bites at others. And far too often we complain. Complain about your boss at work. Complain about your job. Complain about your neighbors. Complain about your school. Complain about your kid's soccer coach. Complain about your church. Far too often we complain. Now, criticism is different. Criticism has a productive aim. And criticism can certainly serve to build up. But complaining has no productive aim. It's just venting. It doesn't build others up. It bites at them because it shares our discontentment with others and usually becomes a weight on their shoulders that drags them down. And when you complain about your church, again, not criticism, but complain, you're complaining about others' efforts to try to love you. Complaining bites. It devours. It tears down. What's the remedy for this? There's a better way to fight for loving relationships in the church. One simple way to fight for this is to walk in gratitude. In all those areas, I think whether we're gossiping or complaining or having a condemning spirit, there's something going on in our own heart that's not content in the Lord. And if you're not feeling thankful, a great exercise is to practice thanksgiving. I did it this past week. I did when I wasn't feeling grateful for things. Sat down, had a little Word document in my quiet time and just listed out things I'm thankful for. It's amazing like when you give your attention to look around you, and you don't have to go very far. I didn't have to go very far. I could thank God for my marriage and for my family and for the living room that I was sitting in. I could just go out from there in concentric circles. It doesn't take long to recognize God's grace. He's been so kind. He's been so gracious. You see, discontentment is being locked in on what we perceive God isn't doing, isn't providing. And dishonors God because it overlooks His kindness and His grace that He's so richly provided. Look for ways to be grateful. Look for ways, rather than complaining, to be a part of the solution. Serve others. Provide for others. See a need. See how you can try to meet that need. And Christian, consider the gratitude you can have in your life today because of how much others have loved you in the past. For 45 years, I've been in local churches. My parents took me as a kid. I have just, I thought about this week, I have just been the recipient of so much love and kindness from others. For those who took care of me in the nursery and taught me Sunday school as a kid, to those who led the Royal Ambassadors group when I was a little boy, student ministry, college ministry, and seminary, life in the local church, just day after day, year after year of love from others, that shapes you. It changes you. It's a blessing in your life. Think about how God is doing that in your life today. In Christ, you've been freed from sin to serve and to love. Focus your attention on that. A second way to use your freedom in Christ, verses 16 through 21, use your freedom to fight against sin. Use your freedom to fight against sin. Having warned against opportunities for the flesh, Paul shows the way forward to fight against the sinful flesh by walking in the Spirit. Look at verses 16 through 18. Verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Paul instructs them that they'll only be able to see victory over the flesh and not gratify the desires of the flesh if they walk by the Spirit. Fleshly means does not fight against the flesh. Putting themselves under the Old Testament law was not going to do anything to fight against sin in their lives. Only by the Spirit can you fight 
the flesh. In other words, true freedom is being free from carrying out the desires of the flesh. Now, what I love about Scripture, it's realistic. You and I often do not have a realistic view of the Christian life. We don't. We, we, we want, like, deliverance now, deliverance now from all of our temptations and troubles. And that's not a realistic view. It's just not how God works normally in the life of a Christian. And in verse 16 through 18, we get a realistic view of the Christian life. But then we also get a hopeful view. So first, the realistic view. The struggle is real. The sinful struggle, it's real. Christian, you will struggle with sinful desires. You should not be surprised by that. We will have sinful urges. The flesh regularly cries out, harassing us, making demands of us. We must be alert. Desires of the flesh work against us, opposing the work of the Spirit in our lives. Look at the end of verse 17. The flesh opposes the Spirit to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The flesh, think of it as the the corpse of the old person. The old you. Already been forgiven of your sins. Already the power of of sin be lifted off of you. But the old person is still there. Meaning we deal with the sinful flesh. And I I think the, the sobering reality of that helps us understand no matter how godly you are, you will struggle with sin every day until glory. That can feel overwhelming. Just wait a minute. We're getting to the hopeful part. It's good not to rush through this. No matter how godly you are, until glory, you will struggle every day with sin. Brothers and sisters, that's a realistic view of the Christian life. But, but don't stop there. We, we also receive a, a hopeful view. In this passage, the struggle is real and the Spirit is at work. Christians will have sinful desires and Christians will have holy desires. Christian, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. At the moment of conversion, you were born again in the Spirit. A work began in you where your sins were forgiven and your desires started to change. Don't miss the part of verse 17 that shows you you will have holy desires. Some people wrongly think of the Christian life mainly as saying no. We need to say no. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness, but it's also saying yes. Yes to good desires. Yes to walking in the Spirit. Part 17, verse 17, part of that shows us, Paul refers there in verse 17 to the things you want to do. Christian, it's awesome that you sincerely want to obey God. It's a genuine desire that God gave you at the moment of conversion to want to obey Him. You genuinely want to honor God and please Him. You want to love your neighbor. You want to show love and grace and forgiveness to others. You didn't generate those desires in your own lives by your own good works and wisdom. Those holy desires were graciously and freely given to you by God who placed His Spirit inside of you. They come from Him. There's a battle in our lives between the desires of the flesh and the things you really want to do. It's humbling because it tells us you can't stop sinning. Do you realize that? You can't stop completely sinning this side of glory. There's also hope. You will fight it. You will fight against sin. As you walk in the Spirit, Christians will fight against the flesh. The mark of the Christian life is not perfection, this side of glory, but it is fighting. There's things we want to do. We wrestle and we struggle. That's better than being dead, though, because you and I, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins. Before conversion, spiritually dead, dead people don't fight. Dead people don't wish and want and desire. Dead people really don't strive to honor God. Spiritually dead people are dead. You and I were spiritually dead. We're struggling now. We're not home yet. That struggle will be over one day. We wish that struggle would be over. But it's better than being dead. And it's the mark of the Christian life. Not perfection, 
but there will be a struggle. You see, the hopeful view is that the flesh, it certainly will oppose the holy desires we have and far too often succeed in keep us, keeping us from doing the things we want to do or keeping us from as quickly doing the things that we want to do. But the hopeful view is the flesh will not win. We will lose battles. We still fight, though. We still struggle. And by the strength of the Spirit, that war will eventually be won. The victory has already been secured through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ has shared His victory by His grace to all who've repented of their sin and put their faith in Him for forgiveness. In verse 18, we see that those who are led by the Spirit will be victorious because you're not under law, meaning you're not enslaved or condemned. The way forward Walk in the Spirit. We'll get to that more in the next point, but we see it introduced right here in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, implying that the Christian life involves slow, steady progress, one foot in front of the other until glory. We find in this section a warning we shouldn't be caught off guard about sin and the harassment of sin, yet we also find assurance that the sinful flesh will not win, for the Spirit of God wars against the flesh. So we should have a faith-based optimism that comes from this passage, meaning we will experience victories over sin this side of heaven. Final victory hasn't come yet. It will come one day. As we walk in the Spirit, we will see victories. We will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We see hope here. The flesh will not, indeed it cannot, win. We have hope here. The Spirit of God is undefeated. The Spirit of God is never lost. All that the Father has given to Christ, the Holy Spirit has preserved until they go to glory. A winning record, undefeated. It's not like college football. We'll see which undefeated team gets beat next week. Undefeated forever. Meaning every person ever filled with the Holy Spirit has finished the race. We see testimonies of that in our own church here. This past year, it was hard to say goodbye to members of our church who went on to glory. But there was also rejoicing that they finished the race. Edie Caldwell finished the race. B.J. Bruce finished the race. Helen Parker finished the race. Brian Purvis finished the race. For the last 87 years, just in this local church alone, hundreds and hundreds have finished the race. They sat in the same pews or balcony chairs you're sitting in this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they finished the race. They have gone before us, and soon enough, maybe sooner than you think, Christian, your race will be over too. We have comfort and confidence that the Spirit of God, He's undefeated, and He too will lead you to the finish line in glory. The battle will be no more. It's already been won. So be sober-minded today. Be hopeful for that day. The best is yet to come. Well, how do you know if you're being led by the Spirit or by the flesh? It's not hard to tell. At least that's what the Apostle Paul says. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Evident meaning it's clear. It's not hard to figure out. If you're walking in the flesh, here's what your life is going to look like. This first list, it's a list of vices. It's organized into four groups. The first group on the list is sexual sin. Three vices listed there, sexual immorality, which is fornication, any form of forbidden sexual relationship, meaning outside of a husband with his wife. Impurity, referring to the uncleanness of sexual sin. Sensuality, working more inwardly, sinful passion and desire. Immorality, 
The world celebrates these sins, but Christians, by God's grace, repent and turn away from them. Tempted by them still, at times, too many times, still failing. Yet the Spirit of God fighting, working in us. Next, the second group on the list, a pair of sins that can be categorized as religious sins. So there's sexual sins and there's religious sins. Idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is worshiping false gods, bowing down to false idols. Sorcery may be less familiar to our immediate context. Certainly it's present here, though. Even more visible, perhaps, in other cultures and contexts. Sorcery is witchcraft. It's Satan worship. It's works of the flesh. The third group is that of social sins. Notice this is the longest group. Eight vices listed. Enmity is hatred between groups of people. Strife is discord from quarrels. Jealousy is selfish resentment. Fits of anger. Outbursts of rage from a bad temper. Rivalries speaks to selfish ambition that tramples over others. Dissensions. Those are divisions in a community over sin. Divisions. Very similar to dissensions. A party spirit that creates division where there should be unity. And then finally, envy, an ungrateful attitude showing a desire for what God has given to someone else. Then the fourth group, excessive sins. The last two sins on the vice list, drunkenness and orgies. They're connected. The consumption of alcohol is not condemned here, but rather overconsumption. Drunkenness, giving yourself over to the control of alcohol. Not only is this a massive problem in our city, in our society, but it's recorded here as one of the telltale signs of living in the flesh. Believers must guard against a licentious view of alcohol. Yes, some churches and Christians have a legalistic view of alcohol. God doesn't forbid it in the Scriptures. That's a man-made rule. But I wonder if in this church the temptation's on the opposite end. A licentious view of alcohol. Freedom without a real view of responsibility. And perhaps some of you should consider abstaining completely. It's too much of a temptation for you to face. Well, connected to drunkenness is orgies or carousing. It's wild partying. It's often paired with alcohol. This, this vice takes a good thing that God created like sex and perverts it into a work of the sinful flesh. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. As Paul adds at the end of verse 21, things like these, meaning he could go on. The point being, one who's walking in these deeds is not walking by the Spirit, but by the flesh. And he issues a warning for this kind of living at the end of verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If the works of the flesh characterize the regular pattern of your life, what this is saying, hear me clearly, hear the warning. This is the pattern of your life. The Apostle Paul says, you should not expect to go to heaven when you die. That's a warning. You're either going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell when you die. Living like this is not a path that indicates you're heading towards heaven, but rather towards hell. You're living like hell on earth. Now, Christians, we don't live in these sins, but sadly, even as we confessed this morning, we do commit them from time to time, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. Christians, though, will not resign themselves to living in these sins. For by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians will repent, will turn away, and not go on practicing these, these sins as a way of life. So again, Christian, heed the warning here. We thought last week that these warnings aren't meant to be just skipped over like, oh yeah, that's just talking about people who think they're Christians and they're really not. Cool, like I'll make sure I share that with one of my family members who says they're Christian but really aren't. It's meant for the whole church. It's meant for you. It's meant for me. Sit in this warning. Don't have a licentious response to sin that thinks, well, I'm forgiven, no one's perfect, and then just keeps on indulging in the flesh. Don't give up your freedom to live back in the slavery to sin. 
And when we see this, these areas of sin, these works of the flesh, not if, but when we see them in our lives, we should be grieved before God over our sin. We should turn to Him and confess our sin, receive the forgiveness that is already ours in Jesus Christ, and then get on to walking in the other direction. That is the normal Christian life. A third way to use your freedom in Christ, verses 22 through 26, use your freedom to walk by the Spirit. Use your freedom to walk by the Spirit. Walking in freedom, walking by the Spirit, synonymous. And Paul gives a second list to show what it looks like to walk in freedom and in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The second list now, it stands in stark contrast to what we just saw. In verses 22 through 23, we see this familiar list of the fruit of the Spirit. The contrast is given by the word, but, but the fruit of the Spirit, emphasizing there's a different way that Christians live. We walk by the Spirit. Now, fruit is the visible, outward manifestation of what the Spirit of God is doing on the inside. So again, there's going to be evidence in our lives, if we're Christians, there's going to be evidence or fruit of the Holy Spirit that is seen to others and seen by yourself. Now, unlike the previous list, there's not a a very clear order for how this list is arranged, except I think love being mentioned first is intentional, emphasizing what Paul just stated back in verses 13 and 14, that a life of freedom in Christ is characterized by love. So let's look first at love. That's not merely a feeling, but an action, self-sacrifice for others. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Certainly it overlaps with happiness, but it's distinct from it. Joy is rejoicing not merely in your circumstances, because our circumstances can change from good to hard, but rejoicing in God's grace to you in Christ. Joy is rooted in rejoicing in God's promises found in Christ. Peace is inner rest, confidence in God, resting in His character, resting in His sovereignty. Patience is perseverance and hardship. Perseverance in difficult circumstances. Persevering with people. Kindness is extending help and gentleness to others, even when they don't extend that to you. Goodness overlaps with kindness. It's moral excellence that's extended to those around you. Faithfulness is trustworthiness that images God and His faithfulness. We can rely on God, and a faithful person is someone you can rely on. Gentleness, like meekness, is strength under control. It responds humbly when offended or sinned against. Self-control is different from self-discipline. Self-control is restraining yourself from sin, from lust of the flesh, by God's grace and the power of His Spirit being able to say no to ungodliness. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. At the end of verse 23, when Paul references such things, that implies more virtues could be listed. Against such things, there are no law. There is no law, rather. Likely meaning that the no external law prohibits or produces these things. Rather, this is fruit produced by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Well, I wonder which list looks more like your life the works of the flesh, or the fruit of the Spirit. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, maybe you're looking at that list and saying, well, my life looks more like the works of the flesh. That can change today. Remember, the response is not go clean yourself up, go home, try harder this week, and then come back to church and see if you're ready to submit your life to Christ. This is a work that the Spirit does in you, not the flesh producing these things in your life. You can repent and believe in Jesus today. And if you've come today and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, please talk to one of our members around you who brought you. Talk to our pastors. I'll be down here at this door, other pastors at other doors. We would be happy to talk to you about what it would look like to put your faith in Jesus today, to be filled with His Holy Spirit, to be changed from the inside out. Christian, use this list of fruit, this fruit of the Spirit, as a prayer list for your own life. 
Ask for the Lord to strengthen you in these areas. And use this vice list as a prayer of confession list. Things to examine your own heart and to pray and seek the Lord's cleansing on. Christian, we should respond to this war humbly with a sober mind, aware of the dangers, sobered by the ongoing battles, yet hopeful. In verse 24, the Apostle Paul again points us to hope in Christ. Verse 24, it's in the indicative, meaning it indicates what God has already done in Christ. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What that means is that your flesh has already been put to death. All Christians have been crucified with Christ, meaning the power of the sinful flesh over you already has been removed. The penalty for sin, the penalty against you, has been lifted and paid for fully by the death of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, paying for our sin in full. And Christian, at the moment of conversion by the power of Jesus Christ, your flesh was put to death. The old corpse of the person, still there, still harassed by fleshly desires, yet the promise of the Spirit there to guard us and to guide us until glory. You understand that this, the goal of the list of the fruit of the Spirit is not to make much of you. It's to make much of Christ, His Spirit dwelling in you. You understand this whole list is about Christ? The fruit of the Spirit all points to Jesus. The fruit of love points us to Jesus. For God demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No greater picture of love than Jesus Christ. The fruit of patience points us to Jesus. Jesus was patient in His suffering, not speaking a word against those who crucified Him, rather saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we consider the fruit of gentleness, Look to Jesus. He is the one who is gentle and lowly. Faithfulness points to Jesus. If there's anything faithful in you, the credit goes to Jesus Christ. For Christ is ever faithful, ever true. He was tempted in all things, yet He remained faithful. And for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, He's forgiven you of all the deeds of the flesh, all of sin past present and future, and it gets even better. The glory of the new covenant, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit is dwelling in you. You've been made new, and the main application here, keep walking in the Spirit. That's the main takeaway. Keep walking. It doesn't say running. I know there's metaphors of a race, but again, we talked about an ultra marathon race, like the race the rest of your life. I love walking. The picture it gives of slow, steady progress in one direction. One foot in front of the other. We do get tired, we do stumble, and we fall, but the mark of the Spirit is we keep on walking. This metaphor, it's given as a command which helps us know that you have a role in your Christian growth. The command in verse 25, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step means stay in formation. Stay in line. Stay alert. Pay attention that you're keeping in step. Live out who you've been made to be through the Spirit of God. Now consider what it looks like practically to walk in the Spirit. First off, don't think that sanctification is a 50-50 work. Like, well, I'll do my half, and Spirit, you do the other half. Sanctification is just like justification in that it's entirely a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is different from justification. The justification is how you're initially saved and converted. You were dead in your sins by the Spirit of God, born again. Sanctification, you're alive in Christ. You're now able to sin and able to not sin. Meaning when you face temptation, you now are able to give into that temptation, but you're also able to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust, which means we can see victory in our lives. Consider what it looks like practically to walk in the Spirit. We've already seen verse 13 and 14, love and serve others. Loving and serving others is keeping in step with the Spirit. We saw in verse 16, don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Say no to temptation. Uh, Make it a practice to ask the question, how often am I saying no to temptation? How often am I confessing when I give in to temptation? That's walking in the Spirit. 
One person defined walking the Spirit like this. The desires produced by the Spirit are stronger than the desires produced by the flesh. Ask the Spirit for stronger desires. In those moments where the desires of the flesh feel stronger than the desires to honor God, ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. He is far more generous to help you than you are often to ask for His help. You see, there's a place in our lives for spiritual discipline. There's a place in our lives for the ordinary means of grace, gathering and hearing the Word and singing and taking the Lord's Supper and baptism. There's a place for spiritual disciplines to extend these ordinary means of grace daily in our lives by listening to God's Word, by praying in the Spirit, by the sword of the Spirit. That's what Ephesians 6, 17 refers to the Word of God as. We keep in step with the Spirit as we obey and repent of sin and submit to God's revealed will and His moral will in Scripture. The call here is this, keep walking, keep taking steps forward. Help each other walk. Walk together. Because of the Holy Spirit, there's good news. Holiness is possible. Obedience is normal and visible in the Christian life. You are not incapable of just, uh, you're not incapable of saying no to ungodliness. In other words, holiness is possible. The Spirit is sufficient to daily walk with Jesus. Ask Him for His help. Brothers and sisters, the normal Christian life, it's not easy, it's not free from trouble or failure, but rather the normal Christian life, it involves war, but the hope we have, this war will not last forever. Power of sin lifted over us. No longer are we in dominion under sin. The penalty of sin removed from us. One day the presence of sin will entirely be gone. And until that day, we have the Holy Spirit to help us, to guard us, and to guide us, to live out the freedom that is ours in Jesus. How often will you ask the Spirit for help this week? Ask for His help to keep loving others. Ask for His help to keep fighting sin. Ask for His help to keep in step with Him. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we come now and we ask for help. Spirit, we pray for Your help. We pray for Your guidance. We pray for You guarding us. We pray that even as we are so quick to forget the words we hear and go on about our lives, we pray that You would guide us this week to keep in step with Your Spirit. We pray we'd leave here sober-minded at the battle that lies before us, but also hopeful in the victory that's already been secured in Christ. We pray that you'd grow us in our confidence in Him. We pray that we would be a fruitful people, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would produce much fruit in us. We pray for your help in this long walk. Lord, give us an obedience in the same direction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.